1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Back in 1963, I hung out in a dive bar, the only club in Topeka that didn't card me. On the night President Kennedy was assassinated, I spotted Dylan John, though back then he was still Arthur Devane, standing with his back against a brick wall in the far end of the room, glaring at the tenor saxophone player. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Richard Falco. His novel, We Are All Together, tells the story of the rise and fall of a rock band along with its members and hangers-on. Dylan John, the young megastar who fronts a band called Red Afternoon, walks away before a major show, and guitarist Stephen Kane gets the opportunity of a lifetime to step into Dylan's shoes It's 1967, and while the country is in turmoil, Stephen makes some bad choices that affect his career and nearly cost him his life. He tells the story of his personal rise and fall, recalling an abusive father, an almost deadly drug addiction, a crazy girlfriend and her scary cult, and his descent from potential rock star to rock bottom. Hi, Richie. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Hi, Khalid. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So how did you come to write We Are All Together?
1: Well, I used to write a music blog called Riff Raff, And when I was uh, doing some research on psychedelic music, I came across um, information on the Pink Floyd. And I, I grew up listening to Pink Floyd. I wouldn't say I was a fan of Pink Floyd. I do, I, I do like some of their music. Um, but I didn't know too much about Sid Barrett. Who was the founder of Pink Floyd and the primary songwriter and the visionary and lyricist and um guitar player. And um, I didn't know too much about him at the time, other than he was kind of the focus of the movie, The Wall, which I had seen when I was really young. It kind of really uh, <laughs> intrigued me, but freaked me out a little bit, especially the part where Sid starts to um, lose his mind. And so I, I did some research on on Sid Barrett. I had a, a student um, once uh, talk to me about Sid Barrett, and I didn't know very much about him, um, and then I, in the research, I, I I was really drawn to some of the stories of Pink Floyd. Um, for instance, one of the stories that really captured my interest was Sid being uh, at the height of his um, success in um, Pink Floyd's first record, um, kind of checked out. Um, and I, we, we don't know if he was an acid casualty or if he just didn't want to be, uh, involved in popular music anymore. Uh, he had enough or he wanted to go solo. Um, and that just really intrigued me that somebody at the, you know, in their prime, at the peak of their powers might just check out. So I, I I went with that kind of like essential question, you know uh, what did Sid do? Did you know was he an nice casualty? Did he just check out? Did he no longer want to be a musician? Uh, had he had enough? Um, and that kind of guided me in the early drafts of of the novel.
0: Wow! So is Stephen based on an actual musician, and if not, what's his backstory?
1: Um, Stephen is based on uh, me, <laughs> but uh, not you know it's Sid is based on um, a Dylan. John uh, Stephen's bandmate and collaborator co- collaborator uh, is based on Sid. So um, Stephen is, you know, I, I put. I, I was a musician for a long time, and I I, I use a few of my stories in there. I didn't use as many as I as I had hoped. Um, but uh, you know, the, the the question that surrounds Stephen is: to what extent will you will a musician go or an artist will go uh, to achieve? success or greatness. Um, and in the end, you know, Stephen's willing to do just about anything to um, be uh, successful.
0: Yeah. It's not clear how Stephen learns to play lead guitar or why he has such a fraught relationship with music. How did you envision that?
1: Well, one one thing I did rely on was a story, uh, you know, something from my... Uh, Childhood. I was around ten, and there were a lot of garage bands in the neighborhood. And I remember watching one through the fence. Uh, it was like you know, a bunch of teenagers and all teenagers hanging out. They didn't want to, you know, a nine, ten year old kid hanging out with them. So I remember just watching through the fence, and I, I distinctly remember the the band playing "Come Together" by the Beatles. And I remember being so like excited by it, you know, I just was thrilled by, by it. And that was, you know, Steven's introduction, although Stephen was uh, a child in the fifties. So the band that he had seen, um, uh, he was just very excited by, by, the, by rock and roll and, um, motivated to, to learn the guitar. Um, part of it was, uh, because of the girls in the audience, Part of it was he just wanted to be cool and he was looking for something to to, to provide him with some focus and he ends up playing um, with that band. So he's motivated to learn guitar, he's motivated to be in a band, he's motivated to um, become a, a rock star, whereas Dylan is, I think, really interested in being a musician.
0: Stephen thinks that his best friend Dylan is more talented than he is. Your quote is: "Although he couldn't shred like me, he produced amazing licks and riffs I could only dream of playing." Can you say more?
1: I, I think Stephen recognizes, uh, as every character in the book recognizes, that Dylan is a genius and that Dylan is is an artist. Dylan's question is: What's his role in society? You know, is, is how important is the artist during a tumultuous? period of the 60s, um, Stephen recognizes that Dylan is just a creator, uh, an inventor of a a music form. Uh, He's a pioneer of psychedelic music. Um, Stephen can play guitar, he could play chords, he could play power chords, he could do all kinds of scales, he could do runs up and down the neck, he could shred. Um, Dylan is a creator, Um, so Dylan, you know, writes the songs, uh, writes the lyrics writes the music, he arranges the music and then essentially tells Stephen what to play uh, even how to play it um, not that I, I don't, I think Dylan can play quite well, but that was also that, that quote was kind of taken from uh, David Gilmore who was a guitar player in uh, Pink Floyd who replaced, ends up replacing Sid in the band and um they you know uh, david and the rest roger waters and the rest of the band all recognized that sid was this you know genius songwriter um but there were times where sid didn't want to play guitar in performances, live performances, when he was going through some difficult times emotionally, he refused to play guitar. You know, there's one time where he just like removed all the strings from the guitar one night um, or he just stood there and they hired David to play guitar um, in case Stephen. I'm sorry, in case um, Sid um, didn't want to play guitar. Um, and, and David Gilmore is a songwriter, um, but I think he's known primarily as a guitar player uh, and a, a great guitar player who could shred um, like like Stephen. Can you
0: describe for people who aren't in the know what do you mean by shred?
1: Well, I, I've played a few bands and, and guitar players. Uh, and to talk about shredding, I, I don't really—I don't think I've ever really played with guitar players who could shred. Uh, maybe wanted to. Most of them were rhythm, really rhythmic players um, who could who can solo. But I, I think of shredders. Maybe that's more of like a, maybe I got the term wrong, but more of like an '80s. It reminds me—I I get the image of like you know um, a, a heavy metal guitar player, you know, <laughs> someone who's playing the notes. Um, and, you know, doing, you know, kind of, uh, amazing things, uh, with dexterity, I guess, and their fingers and able to go up and down the neck with just, you know, with relative ease, um, someone who shreds at one point in the novel, um, that Steven is talking to a kid on the street and they're talking about guitar players and the the kid says he prefers guitar players who aren't really guitar players who could shred because if you can shred, you're not listening to the rest of the band. I mean, this is what the kid said. I don't know if I agree with him that those people, the players who aren't so, um, fluent in, uh, the guitar playing are listening more to the rest of the band and listen to what the rest of the band has to do, uh, what the rest of the band is doing. So, um, yeah, that's my definition of shredding, I hope.
0: That's interesting. It sounds kind of like a, a fabulous improvisation. Yeah. That's it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Stephen says his and Dylan's lives were changed when they saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, February 9th, 1964. I always insist that fo- the Beatles were followed by Topo Jijo, the little mouse, <laughs> but there are people who argue. Do you have any comments on that?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I... I, I musicians, especially rock musicians. Um, there's so many of them said that when they saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, it changed their lives. Um, how many bands were formed, you know, as a result of their appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. Um, I've watched that quite a bit. Um, I wasn't born at the time, but I, I'm a big Beatles fan. And, um, You know, the excitement and the enthusiasm that they generated as a band is um, just unparalleled, in my opinion. Um, And, you know, it's just people got swept away by so many things about that band, not just the sound of the music, which was completely unique, but they were a four piece band. Um, There was no necessarily the leader although John Lennon and Paul McCartney were more of the leaders but there was they were a band um the way they looked um their haircuts the way they dressed um the instruments that they played um uh, uh, you know what's a Hoffner bass what's a Rickenbacker guitar these Vox amps that they are playing um and then you know the other band that that's in the book is the Velvet Underground which is an, another band that you know spawned you know a Multitude of bands after they were uh privy to the velvet underground. Um, so yeah, I mean, Stephen and and Dylan watched that, uh, watch the Beatles on Ed Sullivan show, and immediately they they get the Beatles haircuts and they trade in their leather jackets and uh, all their leather for suits and ties, and they try to emulate their uh favorite mop tops.
0: Yes, I remember all the boys doing that. Can um. Can you say more about how Stephen is uh, always changing his focus?
1: I, you know, I think it's kind of a theme that runs throughout the novel. It's not just Stephen. I think it's Emily. And I think it's Dylan. Um, I think it's uh, Tony Campbell, who's a, a minor character in the book. Uh, you know, young people trying to find an identity, young people trying to find their way in the world, trying to find out who they are and willing to try um, different things on for size, you know? Um, so I think, you know, Steven's willing to do anything to be a musician, to be a full-time musician and to be a success and, and to, um, show his parents that he could become successful and he could do things on his own and he doesn't need their help. And, um, I think he's also trying to kind of seek some revenge in a way, uh, against his parents. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I, Dylan is, you know, he's, he's mercurial, too. Um, you know, he's changing his look constantly. Uh, I just think it's part of life. I just think that's what young people do. Um, and they're, they are very young. I mean, um, Dylan is, uh, you know, only 18 throughout most of the book, and then he's 19 and that's when he kind of steps back from the music and Steven's only 21 years old and they you know in my eyes are they're, they're really babies
0: you mentioned Tony Campbell is was he just is he evil or just trying to make a living
1: he's an opportunist uh, and and i think you know in 1967 i think that's when when uh, the business people figured out that rock and roll is going to stick around for a little bit. It already been around for several years and they were trying to figure out how to make money off rock and roll. Um, and he's one, he's, you know, he's at, at the forefront, so he's an opportunist and he's going to seize uh, any opportunity to, to make some money, but he's also written Dylan's autobiography. So, um, he's, but he's a great marketer, whereas a lot of, um, novelists or writers aren't very good at marketing their abilities. He is, and he's able to parlay that into uh, a business, uh, peace, love, and groove. And he's, you know, he has his book, and he has his clothing line, and um, he's going to do whatever it takes to um, earn a dollar in, in 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 this world.
0: Two other minor characters are worth mentioning. Brian Jennings, he plays a big role in Stephen's life, and also Seth Friedman. Can you say something about those two?
1: Yeah, I know. Brian Jennings, I was thinking about... Um, uh, Brian, I got from like Brian Epstein, uh, the Beatles manager, but he was not Brian Epstein. He was not remotely close to Brian Epstein. Uh, I saw Brian, Brian Jennings as someone who... Uh, also saw an opportunity. I guess Brian Epstein saw an opportunity in the Beatles and, and and capitalized on that, that he had a band and he thought the band had promise, but particularly Dylan. And, um, you know, there's the kind of hints about um, he wanting Dylan to go solo so he can man- manage Dylan's career and not have to deal with the band. And that is a sore spot for Seth, who... Uh, Seth Freeman, who um, kind of takes over where Stephen leaves the band. Actually, Stephen, I should say Stephen and Dylan have a, um, like an Everly Brothers kind of uh, outfit group. And when Stephen leaves Dylan to join um, another band, um, that's when Seth kind of steps in and uh, is like Dylan's right hand man. And he's just trying to keep everything together. And he's just trying to get the band to record their first album. And he knows that um, Dylan is dealing with a lot of psychological uh, issues. And he's desperate. (laughs) He sees his career failing. And he sees um, his life falling apart as a result. Um, So he's just really desperate. And he's also envious of Dylan. And envious and jealous that... Brian Jennings wants to run uh, Dylan's career and he doesn't really care about the rest of the band. Uh, Red Afternoon is Dylan John's band. Mm
0: -hmm. Why did you make Stephen's father such an abusive, controlling, racist, and bigot? (laughs)
1: Um,
0: Did I describe that correctly?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah, I I (laughs) certainly did. I don't know why I did it. I just, I I think I needed. something to um, for Stephen, who's not the most likable character in the beginning of the book, I needed the readers to see um, the pain that he was experiencing from his father and how he was raised from his, by his father uh, who was an abusive alcoholic. And, and I, so I thought that that gave Stephen something that the readers could sympathize with. Um, Stephen's kind of a misogynist and, and an opportunist, as I keep mentioning, and he's willing to betray his best friend and he does betray his best friend. Uh, he has problems with faith and loyalty and he's kind of a, uh, a near do well, and he's not the brightest bulb necessarily. And, um, you know, I needed something to, some background for, for Stephen. So when he gets to New York, we know that he has a broken heart. Um, he, he was with the, in a relationship with a uh, woman who was married and she broke his heart and he had this abusive father and the mother who's uh, rather religious that he just didn't um, see eye to eye with and stuff that he had to deal with that, you know, I, I mean, parents aren't always supportive of a child's dreams and aspirations. And I think he's wrestling with with that, you know, he was at odds with his parents, who don't really want him to pursue music, even though he has talent.
0: Yeah, you describe Emily as beautiful, ethereal, almost, but Stephen sees something wrong with her from the minute they meet. What's going on with that relationship?
1: Yeah, you know, I I, I wanted Emily to be this paradoxical character. Uh, I wanted her to be this, you know, person who says she's rather new agey and Buddhist and doesn't really practice what she preaches. So well, when he meets her on the street, um, he's busking. Her beauty's really evident, and he's has a broken heart. <laughs> so she puts some money into his hat or his guitar case, and he doesn't want her to go. So he starts singing a song for her, and they end up going back to her place um, she's also an amazing artist so I, Stephen recognizes how gifted she is um, and that makes him envious and jealous just the way he's envious and jealous of of Dylan that here's this really talented painter and um, unschooled really she hasn't really gone to school but then she makes um, you know these anti-semitic comments and steven's really put off by them and he's ready to leave um but he's so hurt and uh enchanted by her and he's also high because they're they're like smoking um pot and uh you know so he's high and he ends up staying with her um but he's conflicted all throughout the novel about his feelings for her his attraction to her um and she keeps luring men because you know on one hand she says these rather wise uh insightful things and he's drawn to to her wisdom and then you know then she'll throw an offhanded you know anti-semitic uh, remark or, you know, kind of anti, um, black comment. And, 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 and then he's ready to leave, but he recognizes that, but he's also young and, and, and willing to like, just get his rocks off with, with her and overlook some of these things. Um, but I think in the end, he really, uh, resents that. <clears throat> Regrets. Mm-hmm.
0: That. Yep. I agree. So, um, so interesting it was it was really a fascinating book because you brought us back to this really turbulent time in the 20th century in america and um i'm wondering how you can follow up a book like this what are you working on next
1: <laughs> well you know my, my first book um there is no into to the slope deals with um a, a middle-aged man who's a writer uh, or wannabe writer and it's kind of like coming a middle age story, and uh, we're all together as another first person point of view of a of a, of a young man who's trying to become something. And, and the new book is um, tentatively, I'm calling it Fat Elvis, um, deals with uh, a young person who's uh, a high school person, first person who's um, trying to find his way trying to uh, he's a poet. So trying to make writing more of his um, his way out of where he was brought up. Um, So my first book is set right after nine 11, um, 2002 to 2003. We're all together is 1967 through uh, 1968. And my new book is 1984. Although it kind of started at 1979, but I've, I've since I'm still working on it um i i nineteen eighties and I wanted it to be the period where like rock music was really struggling um and pop music was really uh at the forefront, you know michael jackson and Madonna and and a lot of that um popular music at the time, and that kind of captures um my my character um in the in in the in the middle and kind of limbo and he's drawn to this um other character um who they nickname fat elvis he's overweight and he's an elvis fan he's a big fan of elvis presley um so they have this relationship and mike the, the character the protagonist his name is timmy timmy learns a great deal about himself through fat elvis um yeah
0: <laughs> cool. It sounds interesting. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been really fun and interesting and I wish you well.
1: Thank you, Galeed. Thanks for having me.
0: Again, thank you for joining me. This is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I've been talking to Richard Falco about his new novel, We Are All Together. Hope you all have a good juicy book to cuddle up with today. Happy reading, everyone.